Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Fellow human, what is that you're eating? It's just cereal, Kion. Can you move along? I'm kind of busy. I am not familiar with this cereal of which you speak. It smells like a compound of oat flour and maltodextrin. Come on, you know what cereal is? It's stuff. It's grains and flakes and kernels, and sometimes they're cool little marshmallow shapes, like shamrocks and such. And you ingest this product prior to the commencement of your workday? Stop pretending you don't know what cereal is. I get it. It's a generational thing. You're part of a new cohort that doesn't eat cereal. But that doesn't mean you don't know what it is. Is is that a groat cluster of some kind? Ugh, I give up. So what do you eat for breakfast? I do not follow the schedule of my father or my grandfather. When I am in need of morning nourishment, I open one of these... Foil packets of DHAX 66 formula. It comes in a gel or a foam, and it contains every single element needed to sustain human life. How do you know that? Because it's made from people. So if you and I are both eating Captain Crunch, the difference is... I am actually eating Captain Crunch, indeed. Now, let us listen to this... Amusing show about signature words, our infantile popular culture, and, of course, the death of cereal. And now, speaking publicly for the first time about his 11-year relationship with Tony the Tiger, Colin McEnroe. First of all, he was a lot older than me, uh, and I'm not 100% sure. Well, anyway, it's, it's, it's a long story. But we did have a relationship, and, uh, and I, I learned a lot from him. And I guess the other thing I would... I have to say is obviously our relationship was great. All right. So we're uh, here to talk about uh, three different things. It's the nose. I'm going to introduce the panelists. Let me just quickly tell you, in the second segment of today's show, we've got two topics. One of them is so-called fingerprint words. Now, these are words – This is the premise is that each of us has a word or two or maybe even more than two that we rely on a lot. We don't use it the wrong way and it's not some kind of crutch like actually – uh, it's you know it's a real halfway legitimate word. No, a totally legitimate word, but we have made this word our own, maybe to a greater degree than we're aware of. But the people around us know that we have done that. And I'll give you an example from elsewhere, the show that I listen to a lot to prepare and compare uh, this show uh, is the Slate Culture Gabfest, where somebody on that show likes the word anodyne, and now they all say anodyne. They say anodyne usually about once per show. Uh, and that's not a word that comes up that often. Uh, so uh, it, that's somebody's signature word, and now it's become everybody's signature word. We're also going to talk about the putative decline, not necessarily the fall, but the decline of cereal. Why is that happening? What are the implications? Um, that's all coming up. So a decline of cereal, fingerprint words. Uh, but our big topic here in the A section is going to be a, a massive essay by A.O. Scott. We'll tell you about that in a second. Let me introduce the panel. Her safety word is fingerprint, and her fingerprint word is safety. 
she she prefers fruity pebbles, but apparently not the breakfast cereal of that name. She is one of the founders of The Cut, an online magazine for the formerly vibrant young adults of Connecticut. She is Teresa Kramer. His fingerprint words are woody, meaty, and grotty, which also happens to be the uh, original names of the uh, Rice Krispies elves. Uh, They changed it later to Snap, Crackle, and Pop. He loves Reese's Puffs, but again, this does not apparently refer to a breakfast cereal. He is guitar hero, producer, and cancer activist Jim Chapdelaine. His fingerprint word was stolen by PRISM, a clandestine mass electronic surveillance data mining program launched in 2007 by the NSA. He is pursuing an action in the FISA court to retrieve it. He is James Hanley, who powers the greatness of Trinity's Cine Studio with massive infusions of shredded wheat. Uh, we'll get to all that uh, as we go along here. But yes, uh, the uh, lead piece in, this, uh, in, in the Sunday Times magazine that will officially come out in a couple of days is by A.O. Scott, a critic who has appeared on this show with some frequency. It's basically about the death of adulthood in popular culture. One of the examples he uses is the way that people now read YA fiction, young adult fiction, even though they don't have kids and they're perfectly grown up. But they read The Hunger Games or they read Harry Potter with no real excuse other than they like it, it pleases them, and maybe it's a little bit easy. He concludes this long and some would say rambling essay that takes in everything from Adam Sandler to Natty Bumpo uh, with uh, the statement, YA fiction, this isn't the last word, but one of the last words, YA fiction is the least of it. It is now possible to conceive of adulthood as the state of being forever young. Childhood, once a condition of limited autonomy and deferred pleasure – wait until you're older, is now a zone of perpetual freedom and delight. Grown people feel no compulsion to put away childish things. We can live with our parents, go to summer camp, play dodgeball, collect dolls and action figures, and watch cartoons to our heart's content. These symptoms of arrested development will also be signs that we are freer, more honest, and happier than the uptight fools who let go of such pastimes. So, um, James, in this essay, A.O. Scott is clearly kind of ambivalent about this whole trend. I mean, in some ways, he, I mean, he thinks maybe o- overthrowing the patriarchy, not having to live in this constrained world like Don Draper from Mad Men, is a good thing, and it certainly frees up the women's side of culture uh, in, in ways that he documents extensively. But he's also... Uh, I think a little appalled by how much everybody, including him, he himself, enjoys, you know, bro comedy, bro comedies, Judd Apatow comedies about guys who have no intention ever of meeting any of their adult responsibilities. So, if someone who exhibits a lot of movies, what's your response to this movie critic? Well, I think that the question, the the, the first question I came up with when I read the article was this sense that he is imbued with popular culture in the He's a critic and so he's seeing lots of this stuff all the time. And um, I think it's very easy to get distorted sen- a distorted sense of what that actually means. Um, that I mean I think that more and more culture is driven by that sort of youth – that sense of youth in that in that this is where the money is as far as the big studios are concerned. And he as a critic for a major publication is going to have to be reviewing these films and sees these films. And there is a level on which you enjoy them, of course, but I think they also have a tendency to sort of squeeze out maybe other things that he, I'm sure he sees as well. And so, I mean, as a movie theater operator, you can easily get the sense that you're being overwhelmed by this tide of young adult stuff. But to a certain extent, there's a sort of self-control factor there too. I mean, there's a lot of money being made out of this and this is the big element in the studio's plans for every year is how can you get that young young adult audience? 
yet there are other things out there. And so I think it's a little bit, you know, sort of a, all of these, all of these things, all of these issues that are a part of young adult culture, I think, have always been there. It's just that we have more ways to talk about them now, more ways to be aware of them. And for a critic to come out now and sort of, uh, you know, sort of write this long treatise about it, it's kind of like, okay, but it's been there. But there are other things. That's my my feeling about it. Well, you know, I do think, Teresa, I mean, for example, um, my father wore a jacket and tie (coughs) five, six, seven days a week. I haven't worn a jacket and tie. <laughs> and I'm sitting here in my usual normcore blue jeans outfit. It would not have occurred to a member of my parents' generation to go someplace like Disney World without children. But people do that all the time now. People who don't have children or whose children are, for whatever reason, not coming with them, go or they go to Disney World because they want to. They want to be in Disney World. And and I, I do see a little something about adult life right now. Uh, in one of his reviews, A.O. Scott said, "Adulthood is." a purely theoretical construct. Um, And it's not that we're incapable of being adults, but I I do think in our culture, the things that we like, we get a message that we sort of live out in our daily lives, which is, yeah, you really don't have to do all that grown-up stuff. You can live pretty much as an extension of the way you you were when you were 17. Now, you might say, what's wrong with that? Well, I I sort of – well, I don't say what's wrong with that. I feel – you know, I feel like it was sort of an incomplete look at what people actually live like. Like it was very much about – it was about pop culture and not about – you know, he mentions very briefly sort of people living at home and, you know, maybe not getting jobs right away. But he never takes into consideration – why that that is the reality right now and people don't necessarily I mean I'm sure some people love living at home and having their mom cook for them but not everybody actually wants to be there that's just it's their only choice at the moment um I, I sort of forgot what what question you asked me. It was probably but, too adult a question. <laughs> it was much too adult a question. But I but I think I think more that um it's about uh, it's letting down the pretense, right? So you, you could Don Draper wear, wears a suit every day, and then he cheats on his wife and gets drunk and throws up at Roger Sterling's mother's funeral or something. That is not a very adult thing to do, but you know he's seen as he's seen as an adult for because he wears a suit and tie. No, like that. You know, it's it, there's a general. Well, the way I see it and what you were just saying about the way your parents dress versus the way you dress is more of a deformalization of society rather than necessary because than necessarily a um, than a uh, lack of adulthood. I mean, in a way, Jim, you could say that I mean that all the culture that he talks about, even some of the older culture, it one of the fantasies that we have is that maybe we're not going to have to grow up. And, you know, I even think back to The Sopranos, which I think he uses kind of as, a, as an example of, of a transition piece of culture. But to me, that is very much a show about men who want to be little boys, mm-hmm. you know, and they run sure. around in these kinds of play suits. I, I think it's important to make a distinction between this article and the topic. Right. And that the, the article is sort of infused with his anger at pop culture. And, and I think probably professionally, he's had to see Adam Sandler too much. And I, I, my sympathies are with anybody who's had to suffer through that or a Michael Bay movie. But there's more movies out there. You know, we were talking earlier before about, about boyhood and how great that is. So there are great movies out there. Um, but I also think that 
the generation certainly that I come from and probably you come from, adulthood was modeled for us by guys who were coming home from World War II and wanted to get out of the city and get a job. And, and wearing a tie was a status symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a, a symbol of arrival. And, and my generation, discarding the tie and becoming sort of a no-collar worker mm-hmm. was a different kind of symbol. of Like we had options that they did not have. So while I still have to pay my mortgage and I still have to check my daughter's homework and uh, work probably more than I care to, I don't look at it like being an adult. I look at it like I'm just older. <laughs> I, think, I think it's also possible in those – in the context of – like coming back from World War II and the era that that uh, that that fifties era, sixties into the sixties, it was possible to maintain an orthodoxy in a different way. In that the source of culture, like for instance, the casting of Disney Disneyland as being a place for kids, um, it really uh, it, it it was created originally as a place for kids, but then. As time went on, there were many, many more channels for that information to be used. It became something, okay, let's see how, how can we make more people come and actually turn it into something else and it becomes something. And it becomes something. nostalgic too for exactly. the people who were there and, as kids. And, and so by the time you get down to the, into the 80s, you really have many more channels. You're starting to get the expansion of electronic availability of, uh, of, of, of old culture that is suddenly available more now that you could buy, first of all, videotapes. And now, of course, you could go online and sort of look at the time machine. And you can actually see these things in a different way and sort of consume the culture, if you like, in a different way. And so it doesn't have the same sort of imprint of orthodoxy that says that, okay, you're an adult now and those are kids' things, you know, and you're dressing in a suit. And so this, it, all of that orthodoxy that began to fray in the 60s and came apart later is just not there anymore. And so you don't have that sense that that there's a division between being an adult and being a child or being a, a young adult. I mean, I Go saw ahead. this this week, um, Teresa, because one of the things he makes, uh, the arguments that A.O. Scott makes, is kind of an interesting gender argument. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw it this week a little bit when um, in the midst of all the, the clamor about Ray Rice, the uh, Baltimore Ravens running back, knocked out his then fiance in the elevator. One of the people from show business who rose up to very prominently denounce him Twitter, 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 <laughs> uh, was Seth Rogen. And then quite a bit of a, Seth Rogen has really come out against Ray Rice. And I'm thinking, yeah, but Seth Rogen, you're such a man child, you know, in, in all of your public representations anyway. I've never really seen you in a role where you're not basically smoking pot a lot or just, you know, really having a hard time. And that's adjusting. not even acting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> having, you know, the, a lot of trouble adjusting to the demands of adult life. I, I, I can't really, I mean, like, if, if this were all happening 30 years ago and Jack Lemon, you know, had something to say about it, I, I think it would be different somehow, you know? I mean, Jack Lemon cut a different figure, uh, even though he was in a lot of silly romantic comedies and stuff like that. I, I would pay more attention somehow. And what Scott argues, I think, is that that kind of adult moral voice is now more likely to come from, he, he cites Beyonce. Uh, I would throw in there Amy Poehler or, T- or Tina Fey. If, if people like that speak up, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we get this. You're fully formed adults. You may be doing something that's a little bit adolescent, either uh, making, you know, uh, video sort of well, it's kind of sexy uh, hip hop videos or, or comedies. But we get that you're an adult. We get that you're an adult real person who's given this some thought. And I don't know if there are as many guys who really cut that same kind of profile. 
Maybe, uh, yeah, I'm thinking, I mean, I, th- I almost think it's unfair to uh, compare Seth Rogen to Beyonce because Beyonce is like an industry. <laughs> she's not, you You've know, she, she she's, she's, she's like the new, a better dancer yes, and she's sort of taking over the world and, and Seth Rogen's just <laughs> some actor, you know, <laughs> yeah, but um, I think to some degree women have always been more of the adults, in, you know, when you... I mean, maybe not in real life, but when you look at popular culture, uh, even in Mad Men, which is, you know, he talks about at length in this article, mm. Peggy and Joan are the adults and everybody else is just a mess. And even uh, so, I, I don't I don't find that all that surprising. A- anyone who's lived with two parents, mom's in charge and dad's just kind of like being told what to do most of the time. All right, we've got a call here from Kathy. I don't know about you, Jim. We've all been to Jim's house. We know who has all the toys. Uh, we've uh, Here's Kathy in Manchester. Hi, Kathy. Hi there. Hi, Colin. Love your show, and thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm a baby boomer, peak of the baby boom. And, you know, as we're growing up or, or trying to um, live, get older, I'm going to say, because I'm not sure I'm growing up yet, um, I'd like to say that, all our lives, we've looked at life and growing up as being immortal, you know, that nothing's going to happen to us. Um, we had that question of uh, always looking at the 30s and saying, question people over 30. Now my saying is question people under 30. And I think that the pendulum now has swung where our, our parents were the tie, you know, this is when Mad Men ha- happened during that time. But I think that pendulum swim ba- swing back and forth and the baby boomers are good um, example of how people are trying to change the way the past was. And I think the pendulum will swing back, and that's why my saying of don't trust anyone under 30 kind of is thinking that the pendulum will be swinging back, and they may go back to the um, the ways of the 50s or the persona of the 50s. Uh, I got a tweet here that I I think that the missing word here is, is immature. I could be wrong, but he says, my parents think I am. I think it's implicitly immature, but my gaming buddies beg to differ. That's from Crawl Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great line, too, because that's another example of this. I mean, I don't think that, you know, in, in my own generation, there was, I mean, there were sort of comic book guys, you know, but they were sort of outcasts. I mean, if you're 30 years old and still into comic books, you know, that was sort of a, I did as kind of a problem. But gaming culture just goes on and on and on, right? I mean, it, you know. What's well, live events now? Yeah. The, the, and it's people it, in their 30s mm-hmm. who are playing video games and I, playing them very seriously, yeah. But it's also partly how you perceive yourself. I mean, how you perceive yourself is like a continuum and you may still enjoy doing the same things. But you have to compare what is that, what is, how does that connect with popular culture? And for instance, some, a, a person like Seth Rogen, I can assure you that there are agents and an army of publicists who are absolutely terrified of the fact that he's on the edge of not being Seth Rogen, mm-hmm. the, the familiar Seth Rogen. And, you mean they and, have to cover up any signs yeah, of adulthood? Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and so, you know, this is the sure thing, right? They've got, they, they're always looking to the last thing. They're not looking to, you know, create some new persona. They're looking to the last big success and, oh, let's do it again, you know? And then the... the, the perception of these figures. I mean, Beyonce is an example, too. I mean, she it's true she has a whole staff and a sort of industry that goes along with her that, uh, you know, she's having a great influence. But at some point, they will have to confront the same thing, too, who she really is. You know, when she's 40, 50, 60, you know, she's going to go through 
it, it, what everybody goes through. And so those things are going to become apparent and it will, it, it will break free of the sort of publicist's view of what things should be. Boy, I hope I'm alive for Beyonce's yeah, Menopause too. album. That would be great. <laughs> Seth Rogen actually is doing uh, his own version of The Razor's Edge right now in <laughs> an attempt to remake the Bill Murray uh, I'm a serious actor thing. Well, I was, it, I was trying to think about that, whether <clears throat> there is sort of a comparable arc, right? I mean, I, you know, you think about sort of Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and those guys, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, Ghostbusters is a movie about getting to be a kid to a certain degree. Once again, you've got your play suit on. You know, but, and, and it's also an implicit up yours towards virtually every imaginable authority figure, whether it's the EPA or the mayor of New York or the police. Nobody knows what's going on. They don't understand. The joke is that these three apparent losers right. Uh, right. do understand what's going on and are capable of doing something. But then you sort of see the next iteration, which for me, for those same two guys, Ramis and Murray, is Groundhog Day, which is very much a movie about growing up. How do you grow up? Well, it turns out in this you know fairly – Hindu way. You just have to yeah. live the same existence over, over and over again and until over. you get it. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they, I also think it's important to to make a distinction between people like in this room. And it's not a qualitative uh, distinction. In lifestyles that are led, we, uh, we live sort of in a two-horse town, uh, you know, with defense industry and insurance. Those buildings are loaded with people who are wearing suits either by choice or because they want to or because it's the uniform of, of their culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that they're living lives that are vastly different than mine, but I suspect that uh, the, the time spent is, is different. Um, and if you're self-employed and you're doing something you, you really want to do, it's probably slightly different, although some of those people must love actuarial tables. Well, I think – so I have a few friends who work in those buildings and, you know, they – certainly their, their, you know, nine to five looks much different than mine, but it's not all that much different when they get home. Even exactly. if they have kids – and I, I don't have children, but if they have kids, you know, they still want they still want to have fun. I think part of this is – a sort of a new emphasis on happiness that just didn't exist in 1950s. No one cared if you were happy, whereas now you're like, well, if I'm going to be happy, I have to do what I actually like to do and not just like sit at ballet recitals all day long. So I'm going to go play video games. If you're that kind of guy or dodgeball, as he says in the article, you're going to you're going to whatever it is that makes, you know, your time out might be childish, but. You know, as long right, as that's you're your keeping pers- the kids fed, yeah. it's fine. It's your <laughs> personal fulfillment. This is what you want to do. And so there's a freedom to do that. And I think there's all sorts of avenues by which you can pursue that that are, you know, that there isn't a sort of um, a, a disapproving stare kind of thing by societally, by some sort of orthodoxy. That doesn't exist anymore. And I think part of that is because of the multiple channels that you can express this stuff. And so you can go off and do those things. And I mean, I think all those people who work in more staid professions, of course, they come out to, you know, do things, mm-hmm. everything that they really enjoy doing and probably things they enjoyed doing when they were young. I mean, this is something that, that is going to continue but the question is how you see culture and, and going back to A.O. Scott, I'm th- I think that you can get uh, – if you're in the industry, you can get a feeling, almost a despairing feeling that you can't escape the 
the sort of product angle of, say, movies, but I think it applies to music as well, that there's so much stuff that seems like it's a commercial product and you can't escape it and it gets very frustrating. But the other side of things for somebody who is in the movie industry is that when they make lots of money doing that kind of stuff, you know, Warner Brothers throws out one after another after another and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they throw money at Christopher Nolan and he makes Inception. Uh, you know, they get careless with their money, basically, or venal, perhaps, uh, in terms of investing in something they wouldn't otherwise invest in. So you sort of wait for that to happen. Is this just like a CGI thing that's come to full boil? <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I actually think the question is, you know, to what degree does life begin to mirror what we see in the movies? And to what degree do the movies, in fact... Or simply mirror what's going on in real life. You know, James is going to be showing Vertigo uh, in a few weeks at his theater, and I'm imagining that if it took place now, Jimmy Stewart would be working as a barista. Uh, he'd be getting a stipend from his parents, so he continue could continue to live in the Bay Area. He'd be wearing a hoodie. And you know, he would be gauging. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. You know, and to me, somehow or other, that's not the same character. I don't care. Um, all right, we have to take a little break. Uh, come back. We got to talk about. Uh, it right through my nose. About, yeah. about we're going to talk about fingerprints. Words here, fingerprint yeah. words. Uh, tell me your fingerprint word when we we'll come back. Well, when I lie in my bed at night, I don't want to go up. Nothing ever seems to turn out right, and I don't want to grow up. How do you move in a world of fog that's always changing things? Makes me wish that I could be a dog Well, when I see the price you pay I don't want to grow up no, I don't ever... All right, uh, we're going to have a conversation about fingerprint words. In the studio with me, Teresa Kramer, James Hanley, Jim Chapdelaine. I have to explain what this is not about. I discovered this on Facebook today, that it's necessary to explain what this is not about. This is all based on, on an article in Slate. We'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second. Um, but it, it's not about um, disfluencies like um, like I just did, disfluencies or word, crutch words that really annoy you, people beginning their sentences with the word so or the word actually. Um, it's not about people talking in that strange sing-songy voice that I was just using. It's, um, <laughs> it's not about – I have a friend who is approaching his 60th birthday who is – we almost are going to have to get him help because he's so upset about the misuse of the word around. Um, you know, we, we need to have a conversation around those three questions. And it's not about any of that. This is about the, the use of perfectly legitimate words, which people who use them are not misusing. They're using them accurately. They just use them a lot, maybe a little bit more than anybody else. So it becomes a fingerprint. Uh, so the author here, whose name is either Matthew Malady or Matthew Malady, which is actually how his name is expelled, he says, not too long ago, I was forced to come to grips with something terrible about myself. I use the word iteration a lot, more than any human being should. If I had to ballpark it, I'd set uh, the over-under on daily utterances at five. I'm not proud of this. I prefer to be a guy who can refer to a version or addition or plain old instance of something and who doesn't go around saying iteration over and over again. Alas, that is not me. I found out uh, about my iteration malady in the most jarring way possible. I just started a new job. One, way, one day a few weeks in, I heard three different colleagues with whom I interact often use the word uh, – with whom I interact often – use the word iteration independent of one another. When the third of these, a woman I knew prior to taking the job, said it, I stopped her mid-sentence. 
Did you just say iteration? Why is everyone saying that word? Her response hit me like an unabridged thesaurus to the dome. You should be psyched, she shot back. That's one of your words. <laughs> and he went on to figure out that he also uses tangential, antiquated, uh, cognizant, anachronism. He's got some words by which people know him. So um, we want to talk about this. We really want to hear from you, not about things that annoy you necessarily, <laughs> but about words that, in fact, either you use, maybe in listening to this show, you notice that I rely heavily on, cer- heavily on certain words. I can give you at least one example. Our number, 860-275-7266. I even know where I got that word and how long I've had it. 860 860- 275-7266. You may tweet uh, at Greg at WNPR column. I mean, Greg is our tweet master. Don't tweet at Greg. That won't work. Tweet at WNPR column. So who sent us this thing in the first place? Was it you? Was it him? Who I'd be guilty did? of that. So, yeah, so tell us where, where you want to go with uh, this. Well, I have a theory about these words, and it's, it's like jokes. And I'm good with a joke. If I, if I hear a really funny joke – I run wild with it and tell everybody for about three weeks mm. and then I completely forget the joke and somebody could tell me that joke a year from now and, and it might suddenly – and I'll laugh at it because I completely have forgotten it. I think this, the same thing might be true with a word that we appropriate that, that is sort of cool to us or helps us expand our, uh, a way to express ourselves. But if we don't fully internalize a word – it's just going to it's going to amble off the cliff and disappear in about 3 weeks. I mean there are some people I would put James and Rand Cooper among them uh, among nose panelists who use words so well and use so many different words that it's very difficult catching trying to catch a fingerprint word for either one of them. Well, well it's easier for uh, cretins like myself. Yeah, the, rest of, the rest of us are very easily detected. Uh, mm-hmm. But some people, I mean, the, uh, people with, with, uh, with enormous vocabularies and, and vast uh, ways of expressing themselves, uh, it's, it's much harder to catch them. I'm not saying Rand doesn't have a fingerprint word. I bet we could probably find it if we worked at it. But We're going to uh, need a It's in German. It's in German yeah. if yeah, well, it is. We're yeah. going to need to take everything he says and put it in a word cloud and see which mm-hmm. one pops up when we do that. But uh, I, yeah. I think everyone asked uh, people around them what their trigger words were, right? So yeah. well, that's my, a different trigger words are different. <laughs> or, or, I mean, not trigger words, what their, what their uh, fingerprint <laughs> words. God, there's so many uh, topics. So my, my daughter said uh, mine was no. <laughs> and, and my w- wife said uh, that it was, I'll get to it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so that's maybe a, uh, a th- fingerprint th- phrase. I think one of the problems with these uh, words is that it's very hard uh, yourself to be aware. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know when you hear other people do it, uh, you, 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 especially if you know the person and you have a sense that uh, you know they are using a word in a particular way. Maybe it's a little nuance about using it in a way that is correct but is a little different outside of mainstream language, for example. I mean, I, to me, when I'm reading a book and reading a book that particularly plays with language, for example, I'll be conscious as sort of, wow, I like the way the language is and I like the way the writer is writing and probably subconsciously pick up some of those words. But I can't say I'm conscious of sort of using those words, but somebody else uh, might comment on that. It's really one of those evanescent things that, that to me is really hard to pick up, but you know it when you hear it. James, evanescent. evanescent. Oh, that's your word. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. the first time I've ever heard you say evanescent. <laughs> yeah, that can't be his fingerprint word. I don't think so. Uh, our number but eight, it will be. Yeah, 860-275-7266. So I'll quickly – I will tell a story here and maybe this will sort of get the ball rolling all in it. In one of those directions. So when I was in eighth grade, I've actually said this on the air once before, I think. When I was in eighth grade, uh, I happened to be sitting in a, in a meeting 
for people what? who are joining the debate team. This is such a sad, nerdy story. People are joining the debate team, and we were getting briefed on how to be a good debater. And the person briefing us was a, an older classman, a guy named Paul Kurlansky, who I always thought was kind of a real model of poise. You know, I kind of wished I was a little bit more like Paul Kurlansky. He, he used language very well, and he seemed very calm about everything. So one of the things that he said to us was, he said, you should be confident up there. Uh, when you're up there debating, you should be confident. And then he paused and he said, of course, it would be good if that were warranted. Uh, and I thought, <laughs> that's so cool. I remember being in eighth grade and thinking, that is such a cool thing to say. It would be good if that were warranted. And so and I have kept that with me. I am quite a bit older than eighth grade now. I have kept that with me for the longest time. And the reason I really know it is that my son now uses that the, the exact same way. He has clearly picked up from me this term warranted, which is a signature word for me, absolutely, and, uh, and, and now uses it. So there's, there's, there's a fingerprint. There's a, you couldn't figure out your fingerprint word? No. I asked my boyfriend last night, and he couldn't come up with anyone. And I, I was actually thinking what he was going to say was deleterious because on our apparently I said that on our first date, and it made him think I was <laughs> wow, smart. Wow, you brought out the big guns. <laughs> I yeah. did. But there's just not a, there's not a great <laughs> synonym that makes you sound less smart out there, you know? So yeah. So it's um, so I thought, but I mean I don't have occasion. That's it's not like iteration. It's it's not something I say on a daily basis or four times a day. And I was also thinking that part of the reason I might have not have a word is because I work from home and spend most of my time with uh, animals that don't speak. And so, so using big words with them is lost. I mostly just really say smart like parrot. sit right. and stay all the time. Um, well, you know, one of the th- questions that's raised in this essay is, so what's going on here? Because you really can see this. And, uh, for example, I would say another of my uh, fingerprint words is trope. used to be meme. I broke up with meme. Uh, I'm trying to trope. get you guys back together, yeah, by the way. <laughs> you and meme. But, but you were such a cute couple. Yeah, but meme is right on point here, right? Because, in fact, one of the questions is, well, what's going on here? Well, one argument is mimesis is going on here, that we are essentially imitative animals. That's how we learn. That's how we spread. That's what a joke is, right? A joke that goes, quote, unquote, viral is a joke that people simply want to imitate. They hear Jim tell it. They want to tell it. Um, and, and so we do that with everything. And words that are kind of – that seem to work nicely in some kind of an environment. So we, we, we imitate them. They work well. We hear uh, Matthew uh, saying iteration. We say iteration. That's a great word, iteration. Uh, or what are, what are his other ones? Anachronistic or tangential. Antiquity. Was yeah, those, it? Are, those are good words. You know, we hear him say it, so we do that, and that's pretty good. Um, the other argument that's used, and several scholars and linguists were um, uh, interviewed about this, is that it's a status issue. And I hear this a lot. People look at my newspaper column and they say, I have to go to the online dictionary. Why do you use that kind of word? Um, and so and, – and I think of it in the example that I used at the top of the show. So on uh, Slate Culture Gab Fest, which I admire. I'm a real groupie uh, of Slate Culture Gab Fest. Like anodyne is one of their cool words. When they first started using it, I think the critic Dana Stevens is the one who got everybody saying anodyne. But I'm not 100 percent sure about that. And I wasn't even really 100% sure I knew what it meant. <laughs> like I, I did have to go to the online dictionary uh, and, and find out. So it basically means what? Bland, basically. It means bland and kind of, you know, 
Well, bland. Bland is good. It's easier to say bland, yeah. though. Well, that's the question. So the, uh, the other argument, James, is it's not just about mimesis. It's really about status. Right. That, that you're listening to this particular show, which has people on it who say anodyne instead of bland. So both you and they are participating in a set of status markers. Well, right. But I think it's very da- dangerous territory to use words as status words or to sort of actually consciously be doing that because inevitably you're going to find yourself in a way you using a, a word with a nuance that is actually off-key and is actually not quite correct. I had some deleterious <laughs> pancakes. <Yeah. through> that. <laughs> well, yes, and I mean you, you get yourself into trouble. Uh, I mean it's one thing to read a word, uh, read a piece of uh, writing or hear a piece, hear a speaker, an eloquent speaker, and uh, use a word. I mean it can be very tempting listening to a Shakespearean speech by some great actor and you hear sort of antique words in a way, uh, old style of speech that is incredibly impressive in that context. But if you were to pick it out and actually use it and do sort of a Laurence Olivier in the middle of your conversation or writing, it will appear awkward and off-key and, and out of place. And then it looks like you're using status and then you look like a fool. I mean, I think that, that it's a matter of actually absorbing the meaning and also the changing meaning because so many words are, uh, especially in sort of a pop culture sense, there are so many words that they do acquire a suggestion of a meaning that is totally at odds with what it was before. And you'd better know that if you're going to use it or you'll, you will sound foolish. You'll sound as though you're, you're just using it for status. A little bit of what you're talking about is vocabulary as sport. <laughs> and, and I think yeah. we've all been to a party where there's the door and between us and the door is that person who is <laughs> bound and determined <laughs> To swing for the bleachers and 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 go for the multisyllabic home run, um, and that's a horrible situation to be in. Greg uh, tweets: My wife says baseline more than anyone I know. That's for sure. Her fingerprint word. Laura De- Lara Day tweets: I actually LOL'd because Colin definitely says trope all the time. <laughs> um, so there you go. And 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 yeah, and I do think that. As long as – I mean these words, for the most part, they're kind of useful words. I, I'll tell you another one. I think cohort is one that I've been using a lot, I'm just talking about generational cohorts. Uh, and, and, and some of it is – I mean when you have to talk about it. sounds a little radio. dangerous to yeah. cohorts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Translation from a Latin textbook. Yeah, right. <laughs> when, you, when you have to talk on public radio all the time, you kind of want to sound smart, right? Yeah. It's public radio. You're yeah, supposed right. to sound smart. So you pick up these Jonah Lehrer type words and then you start saying them. All right. We have just enough time I think to segue over to the incredible – incredibly important question of what is happening to breakfast cereal, an entire civilization of leprechauns uh, and elves and tigers may be teetering in the balance. According to this week's New York Times, um, cereal consumption is on the decline. And there turned out to be a lot of different reasons. There isn't just one. It's one of the things that is especially frustrating to cereal companies, which is if they could figure out the one thing that was going wrong, they would try to kill somebody or fix it somehow. I mean, they would do something. Uh, unfortunately, it's not just one thing. But for some reason or other, people – no, not for some reason. For me, I'll, I'll quote from the article. But investment analysts say the current slump is a result of more pernicious trends. The common observation by a lot of companies facing declining cereal sales is that this is a 
kind of death by a thousand cuts, says one investment analyst. Uh, he's actually the author of The Serial Killers, Five Trends Revolutionizing the American Breakfast. This is frustrating for food companies because they're faced with pe- people making choices and they're not really sure which trend to blame. Like, I think it's important with anything like this that comes up to blame millennials, whether it's their fault or not. <laughs> so, so millennials, you are killing cereal right now. But millennials do. They snack more than eat, right? And they don't, they're not into three structured meals. You know, they're not well, into, then okay. that seems like you should love cereal. Because I, I, so if I'm not an adult in some way, it's that I don't like to eat meals all that much. When left to my own devices, I, I snack a lot or I have very small meals. Yes, I'm a grazer. Yeah. And... Um, so ce- I love cereal. I love to just be able to pour something into a bowl and eat it for dinner, and that's all I have to do. But I also realize that that is not a great choice in life. And if you don't want to eat just like sugar and wheat all day long, you can't just eat eat cereal. So I have I have basically stopped eating. Maybe cereal, cereal has become an adult yeah. because it <laughs> is sort of fancy and mm-hmm. granolas, and it gets fancier mm-hmm. with almond sauce and milk and all. But it also goes the other way. I once saw this cereal called Crave. I took a picture of it in the grocery store because it was just like, <laughs> yeah, it was literally, they were pretty much Isn't just. is that a cat food? <laughs> yes. No. You were improved with crack. <laughs> exactly. I think that was my comment was that basically they were just admitting that. Yeah. They, it's they crack were and rave crack yeah. together. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got Sugar-coated bits of protein Spelled shaped with a like K. sugar. Just to but don't you think children. that the, the root of the real panic here mm-hmm. is that an entire industry based on taxpayer-supported free ingredients <laughs> like sugar mm-hmm. is suddenly being threatened? That, yeah. that the thought that you know, wait a minute, this has been so easy for so many years, and all of a sudden now uh, maybe you know there's a new generation of people who are not going to to buy the same stuff. And so many of the cereals are like Crave and they're just disgusting. Yeah. So you're just like, we're not even going down that aisle because the kid is right. going to pick whatever horrendous thing is at, at F- eye level instead food of... Food coloring, sugar, yeah. all of these ingredients mm-hmm. that, I mean, I think it's a really healthy thing that people are picking mm-hmm. other things and thinking about other things. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, personally being a consumer of shredded wheat, uh, that I, I, I just really <laughs> like the plainness of that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like comforting in a way. But um, I think that that the general health of the population would improve if there were less sugar around. So I can't see that it's a a bad thing that's happening. I do think it's a sort of a multi... First of all, I do want to say I encountered in getting ready for this topic one social science study which said that, and I think it was true even among adults, that if they made eye contact with Captain Crunch or the Trix Rabbit or something like that, they were more likely to have a positive set of associations <laughs> with the cereal, perhaps more likely to buy it. It's obviously one of the reasons that Trix and Captain Crunch are two feet off the ground you know, and not five feet off the ground. They're always on the lowest two shelves because they want children to make eye contact with the Trix Rabbit. Does uh, the trick- does he make eye contact back? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that was that was the study that the study <laughs> yes, suggested anyway that you. that something was going on there. There was kind of a bonding That's process. Pretty freaky. But you know, one thing that we do here all the time on this show, on on all the shows we do here at Public Radio, when we're doing our mic check, because we want people to answer questions in kind of a natural voice, we ask them what they had for breakfast. So that if we'd been just rolling on this, we would have this incredible database. Now we have now asked <laughs> thousands and thousands of people what they had for breakfast, and. and <laughs> 
it does seem to me that there are a lot more people who are having coffee for breakfast and maybe munching a granola bar a little bit later. Snarge. And, you know, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, I think there is a, a deconstructing of the day. And, and maybe that's all part of the same A.O. Scott rebellion, right? I'm not going to do things the way my parents did them. I'm not, I'm not going to have a breakfast at a certain time. But maybe like going out to a diner becomes more ceremonial than it is a daily experience uh, where you're going to go out and have pancakes and bacon and eggs. Nobody really has the luxury of taking an hour or two out of their day to go sit in a booth or even have the time to prepare all that stuff, I don't think. I wonder how much really the whole idea, the trope, if you like, of breakfast (laughs) from the 1950s really ever exists. Existed. I mean, it, it, these are advertising concepts that were convenient for selling products. Uh, this post-war generation, you know, all of a sudden the availability of all these easy-to-prepare foods. You could just pour it out of the box for the kids and stuff like that. But uh, there are so many more choices, so much more awareness of sugar being not so good for you and of, of really eating when you feel like it, grazing, you know, not sort of sitting down for some big meal that, that – I mean, there there are lots of people I know who just don't feel that well in the early morning. You know, they don't want to get – they don't want to sit down for a breakfast. They'll wait until 10 or 11 o'clock and snack on something. I know those people. One of my friends who I often take road trips with is not a breakfast person. And I actually – if there's one meal a day, I actually do love. It's breakfast. I love eggs. I love everything about them. I just – I would eat them every meal. Well, the argument anyway could be made persuasively that uh, any civilization that gave us Count Chocula has not been a good steward <laughs> Steward of its own uh, continued existence, and no one should feel bad if cereals are going it's away. It's also the death of the jingle, too, because well, the yeah. cereals used to have the best jingles. Uh, that could be a whole separate show, actually. I'm about to sing. I really want to sing the Rice Krispies yeah, jingle, but I'm not, not going to. How can you All right, not? Because we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with endorsements. I love my cereal, my cereal. Yes, I will go kill the Rice Krispies elves. Damn it, I think the tricks rabbit hypnotized me. Again. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are John Francois and Colleen Mason. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam Sandler. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff crushing and snorting French Toast Crunch, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, William Grider from The Nation visits the Scramble. And now, back to Colin. All right, yes, we're back. We're, we have time for endorsements. This is where our panel gets to tell you about things that they know about, that they wish that you knew about. So, Teresa, what do you wish people knew about? I would like to endorse um, library book sales. This I've recently discovered them. I, I used to avoid them because I figured it was all the same books that I had gotten rid of when I donated to um, donated to the library because like books I didn't really like very much, whatever. But I happened to stumble upon one in the spring and found like every book I wanted to buy and been putting off for a while. And then so when I saw the signs pop up in my neighborhood recently about the about the 
most recent one. I was I like lost it. I like put it on my calendar. I was so excited. I it, I came home with five books for four dollars. It was great. I love it. I think there's something going on there too. I think they're shrinking the sizes of their collections, mm-hmm. maybe yeah, necessarily. Yeah. And 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 meanwhile, the other thing that's going on is even though there, are, I mean, online there's some fabulous advan- opportunities to track down books that you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Actually, I have a book right now, which I've renewed once already, which is from the Colchester Library, which is the only library for miles around <laughs> that has it. I wish they'd have a book sale so that I could buy it. Mm-hmm. If I tried to buy it online, it, it's you know how you go on Amazon and they say, oh, yeah, that one's $342 yeah. because they there's like <laughs> only six copies even known to continue to exist anywhere. So there, there's something going on and maybe – we should all be going to more library sales. James, what have you got? Well, there's a recommendation, but I have a, a, a rant I've been holding in for a long time. <laughs> to, right. to Departments of transportation everywhere, if you want people to ride buses and you're going to wrap the buses with advertising and slogans, please don't wrap the windows. It's like riding in, I don't know, a prison bus. Not that I know inside, but <laughs> it, 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 please don't wrap the buses that way. Uh, just keep the windows clear because when you're riding a bus, you like to look out. Um, I one of the my uh, the most amazing books I read in the past year, a piece of journalism uh, by Matt Taibbi called Divide, um, fascinated me as a book about where we stand economically now. Um, but there's a new book I'm reading called Connected by Stephen Cassidy. Um, about really where uh, American uh, the the American society we live in now came from in the turn of the nineteenth and into the twentieth century, um, it's it's called connected and it really is about in a way about network of all sorts of things happening that create a society, but what is fascinating is connecting it with where we get to in uh, Matt Taibbi's. Um, uh, Piece divide, and then lastly, um, Calvary. Brian Gleason's, uh, Brendan Gleason's performance in Calvary, which we're showing tonight and tomorrow, really amazing. All right, uh, Jim, you're going to have to be swift. All right, swiftly, I will uh, endorse J. Renee uh, Coffee Shop on Park Road in West Hartford. I've uh, recently become severely addicted to the lattes. Uh, it's a great place. They're finely dressed people. And this weekend coming up, the Mitchell Horse Farm's uh, annual two-day concert is uh, coming up in Salem, Connecticut. That's really a lot of fun. All right. You mocked me in a Starbucks line one time for ordering a latte. <laughs> now you've fallen. I'm not, I, I've fallen. It's a trope. Fallen prey. It's a trope. I, I caught it. I will be at Calvary, by the way, the movie at uh, Trinity Cine Studio on Saturday night. I can't wait to see it. Um, Kyone wants me to tell you about The Mouth, which is uh, a storytelling series that she hosts at the Mark Twain House. That's tonight at 7.30. It looks like five bucks will get you in. The theme was, is, it was an accident. Also, speaking of things that cost $5, I've got to remind you that on September 30th, we're having our five-year anniversary party. Uh, It'll be a star-studded night with all of your favorites from the nose and lots of other people as well. Chance to to meet us and uh, for five dollars the, uh, the infinity music hall in hartford will welcome you in give you your first drink for free and there'll be snacks there'll be snacks also snacks are just so great so join us on that night you can find about it go on event bright that's b-r-i-t-e unfortunately you just type my name into search and you'll see something about it so uh thanks to everybody on the nose today we'll see you next week the scramble starts out on monday I'm Kyone Wolf. So cereal is just cold soup that you eat with a spoon, which is just a tiny bowl that you use to eat from a larger bowl, which means what if I'm the utensil for somebody else's cereal? All right, now I'm just freaking myself out.